Hello, my lovers, my puppies, my kittens, my schmoopies. Hi. If you had to choose one episode of the entire series of What the Fockery so far, I am going to suggest this one. Yes, you heard, this is it. Um, a few months ago, I put out this call, right? Uh, asking folks to share their stories with and experiences with microaggression. Now, it's a term that is being thrown around a lot. Uh, at least it's come to my awareness in a major way for the last year, if not the last four years. <laughs> but it seems to really uh, get thrown around a lot. And I was surprised at the number of submissions I received. A lot of voice memos from people I've never met. They've never met me. Some of them had never even heard of What the Fockery. And these people took time out of their busy lives to step in a closet or go in a car and just purge. And I thought I was just going to do this episode on microaggression where I was going to allow you, dear listener, to hear these awesome stories. Well, awesome as in not that positive awesome, but awe as in huge. Hear these stories, right? Except I came across a gentleman who happens to be an expert on the topic. So what a fun thing we've got ready. The plan is this. I will talk to our guest, and then we will listen, listen to the submissions, and after each clip, we get to unpack. Before we begin, though, I have to send out a special thanks to a brand new Patreon supporter. Her name is Shanice Rand. Thank you, Shanice. You're keeping me going. And so grateful for you. Thank you so much. And meet us on Patreon. What the fuckery is microaggression? we're about to find out. I'm Nadege August, your host. If this is your first time, welcome. And if you hit that subscribe button, you will be an automatic schmoopy. <laughs> Here's what you can expect. What the Fockery is a podcast about the things we hear about but don't know enough about. A series of conversations dedicated to hearing firsthand from the very people whose lifestyle, truths, experiences, or concept we struggle with understanding. The very things we should know about but are afraid to discuss. Our subjects and topics may or may not be mainstream, but our guests and sometimes experts are in it, living their truth whether we accept them or not. And if in that process we manage to bring clarity to you, dear listener, then thank you for being curious, open, and willing. In that vein today, my guest is Eric Peterson. Now, Eric is a recognized facilitator and educator in the diversity and inclusion space. With over 18 years of experience in implicit bias, learning strategies, and organizational development, 
He is currently a senior consultant with Cook Ross Inc. And Eric has been, get this, my people, Eric has been a guest contributor for NBC News, uh, has been published in Profiles and Diversity Journal, has been sourced as a diversity and inclusion expert by CNN, NPR, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, The LA Times, just to name a few. Yes, 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 yes. Only the best for you, my listeners. Let's just get started. What the fuckery is microaggression? Now, I should thank you for being here, but I figured. Well, I'm pleased to be here. Uh, th- thank you for having me. Um, you know, microaggressions is an interesting term, and it doesn't really have a standard definition that I've seen everyone agree upon. Uh, so here's how I'll break it down. Um, As folks know, uh, I'm a consultant in the field of diversity and inclusion. I've been doing this work for about 20 years. I think you have to look at both parts of that word. And aggression is something that is hurtful, right? It's something that is is done or said in a way that 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 wounds people. And generally, when I use it in the in the sense of my work, it's around this idea of identity that you are saying or doing something to me specifically because I am a woman or a person of color or a member of the LGBT community or somebody with a disability, a non-Christian, et cetera. Um, some kind of disenfranchised identity uh, is being attacked uh, in an aggressive way. But micro typically means that this is something that if it's only done once, you could almost look at it and say, did they mean to do that? Am I taking this too personally? Is this a, is, did what just happened happen? But when it happens over and over and over again, and it becomes pretty clear that a message is being sent, then something really has to be done. So typically, a microaggression that's only done once. You know, if you're talking in a meeting and your boss takes that moment to look at their watch, that might be a sign that he's bored, that he doesn't (laughs) take you very seriously, uh, that what you're saying is of no value. But it just happens once, you can probably let it go. If every single time you speak, he looks at his watch or checks the time, that starts to become something that requires some action. Do you happen to know, because I love language, uh, why this term came about? And I seem to hear it a lot more these days. And in my purview, micro, it's Latin for small, right? It's tiny. Yep. Um, but if it only happens once, but there are several little microaggressions, does it, is, is it now referred to as a macroaggression or just aggression? Yeah, you know, it, it starts, there is, a, there is a line, and again, there's no real way to diagnose what's going on. I tend to believe <laughs> that microaggression probably gained some popularity because it's a little bit easier for the perpetrators of these aggressions to accept the fact that they might have exhibited a micro aggression. Straight up calling somebody aggressive is going to lead to a lot of defensiveness, and they're not going to necessarily take that news very well. The counseling that you're trying to give them probably won't go over so well. We do a lot in our industry of making this conversation easy for people in power to take. When the fact is that the people who were without the power are the ones who've been doing most of the suffering for a long time. <laughs> yeah, they're the victims. They're on the receiving yeah. end. Yeah. In your line of work, um, how did you even fall into that sort of line of work? I mean, who goes to schools like, I'm going to learn how to include people? 
Well, you know, people are doing that now. Um, I'm pushing 50, and so that's something that was not being done a whole lot when I was coming up in the world. Um, I uh, started out as a theater major. Uh, I was hoping to break into the world of entertainment and do that. I found out that while I, I my talent is, you know, uh, up for debate, my tenacity was not there uh, to actually survive all the times that you have to have to look for work while you're doing that particular job. I was not cut out for that. My brain yeah. did not handle it. Your um, job is to look for jobs. Yes, basically. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And okay. the, the, you know, the tiny bit of time you actually get to spend working all the stuff that you've been trained to do feels like such a luxury. But I always tell people I learned a lot as a theater major that I put to use in my current role because, you know, so much time that you spend and you're an actor um, you know, you talk to a lot of actors. First thing you do when you pick up a script is to say, how is this person like me and how is this person not like me? Where can I dig into my own experience and where am I going to have to be inventive and think of some other things? You really do have to understand people. And so, and understand people who are different from you. And so that was actually my love of theater and performance. And I, I wanted to be an actor, director, playwright, triple threat. That was my goal. Uh, a lot came from that. Um, but when I got into the corporate world and I started doing some other things, I, I fell into training, taking some of those platform skills and being in front of an audience. And my fear of public speaking was a little bit less than some of the others uh, in my field. And so I started doing a lot of training. And then when diversity training became popular, I just fell in love with it. Those became the only classes I looked forward to teaching, there's where my, my spirit and my passion really kind of aligned and I just kind of thought, this is it, this is what I'm meant to do. Uh, and so I did go to graduate school and get a degree in organization development uh, so that I could help organizations make changes. But for me, it was always towards this idea of making your organization more inclusive of everyone who wants to work there. Uh, with the belief that a diverse working population is gonna make for a better result. You know, there's, there's a strong business case, but for me, it's always been the values case. Uh, that Got really it. Long. Yeah. So question, you know, it's interesting because when you're describing the work that, you know, actors do or this ability to understand others or it sounds like empathy. Some might call it empathy, which is the ability to really feel, put yourself in someone's shoes. Question for you. And I loved to know this answer for sure. Can empathy be taught? Empathy can, I believe, be practiced. I believe that you can practice and you can get better. I think that there are some people in the world who are naturally empathetic. They are born with a certain kind of pre-developed muscle, uh, same as though people who can fall out of the womb and they're, they're a lovely singer and there are those who, and, and singing teachers will say, even someone who is believed to be tone deaf can practice and get better. So yes, I do think that in a certain sense, it can be taught. Is everyone going to be equally good at it at the end of all that teaching? Probably not. Uh, but I do think that, yes, it's something, and leaders in organizations, I will tell them, this is something you have to practice. This is a part of your job, is to learn how to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else and take a good look around and see what they are experiencing. And you can do this on your own. You don't need a whole lot of help once you get good at it. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Well, that gives me hope. Um, I, I wonder if it wouldn't be useful to teach empathy early in school. I, yeah, I think that would be a great idea. And, and also just teach about how people are different and how people see 
different things differently. You know how two people can look at the exact same thing and walk away with two very different stories yeah. about what just went on. I think we, we do spend a lot of time teaching people that there is an objective answer for a lot of things. And the fact is, in the world of human behavior, there's a lot more shades of gray than there yes. are strict black and white answers. Yeah, I always have that visual of and geometry of those two circles that meet and somewhere in between, that's where they have commonality. So it's like black, white, gray, and there's more gray happening than yep. there usually is uh, either. Usually there's uh, a sliver of black and a sliver of white and a whole lot of gray stuff. <laughs> a whole lot of gray. Yeah, and also the analogies can go on, like siblings. We grew up in the same household, same parents, and how are we so different? We are a recollection of an, inc- of an incident that we both witnessed we're going to walk away with completely different way of describing it. It's our filters are different based on our own interpretations of our experiences and everything else. Yeah. Well, I would love to sit in one of your classes, Professor Peterson. You are. Professor <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm, you know, I, I work mostly in organizations. So, uh, uh, I, I have a master's degree, but nobody calls me master. What? You're an independent consultant? Uh, no, I work for a firm. Uh, we're called Cook Ross. Uh, you can find us at cookross.com. Uh, and we work with organizations large and small to uh, full service consulting. So we also do a lot of strategy work and a lot of uh, assessments and things like that. But I spend most of my time facilitating workshops and doing kind of that level of education. Well, it sounds like you are the dream guest for what we are doing. Today, with this episode, we're hearing stories firsthand sent in by folks all across the country about uh, their personal stories of um, perceived microaggressions. And I say perceived, in no way am I hopefully insulting the kindness of those who are more than happy, perfect strangers sending me their stories. People are dying to be heard which is just amazing. Um, So, but the question will be, after we hear the clips, Mm -hmm. you will assess and tell us what it, what you think it really, what, what's the gray? Sure. Well, I think that the, your use of the word perceived is actually really smart because so much of diversity and inclusion work really revolves around this idea of intent versus impact right? Mm -hmm. That somebody could have a good intent and it nonetheless has a bad impact. And I really think that microaggressions tend to fall out along three different scales. Um, Firstly, there are people whose intent matches the impact. They mean to hurt your feelings. They're not nice people. You know, professionally behind closed doors, we call them jerks, right? (laughs) I mean, they're just, Mm -hmm. there are bad people in the world. Um, the second uh, are people for whom they are complete, they have, their intentions are actually good and their behaviors are misunderstood. Um, I have a quick story about that, uh, if you'd like to hear it. So, okay, great. I, um, I was once working for a guy, I'm going to change his name, I'm going to call him Fred. And Fred worked at the end of a long hallway that he had to go past everyone else's door to get to the elevator. And one night it was the end of the day. And the only people left in the office were two African-American women and an African-American man. And so he's walking down the hall towards the elevator to end his day. And he hears someone call out, good night, Fred. And he says, good night, Lynn. And I'm making up all these names. You know, good night, Fred. Good night, Danielle. And he gets to the end of the, hot, the, the, the hallway. Uh, and this man shouts out, good night, Fred. And he says, good night, John Boy. Now, if you're familiar with the Waltons, do you know that television show? Yeah, from the yeah, we've heard, yeah it's a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Ended every single, the same way every single time. 
you know, everyone saying goodnight to each other. And Richard Thomas played John Boy. And it always ended with goodnight, John Boy, and the lights would go down. Well, these three people had never seen that show. Mm. And so to their ears, he just referred to an African-American professional as, as boy. Right? And it was not okay. Now, here's what I want to say. And I believe that Fred did not mean to demean John at all. Uh, did not want to, you know, make him feel less than or, you know, uh, anything like that. I think he wanted to be in on this joke mm -hmm. with everyone. Remember this old TV mm -hmm. show and kind of it was this sweet little ending. Um, but he was, there was a complaint made. And what I want to say about, you know, when intent does not match outcome is that it's not good intent never cancels out a bad impact. If someone feels hurt, if someone feels wounded, you still have to take some kind of action. And I didn't mean it that way is not an excuse. Wow. And so Fred actually did the right thing. He went back to this employee. He explained where the joke came from. He, he explained what his intent was, but he also offered a very sincere apology for ruining his night, you know, and saying something clumsy and assuming that he would get a joke that he clearly didn't have the, you know, he was too young to have seen a lot of the Waltons and it just wasn't part of his background. And he took full accountability for what happened. And I think that's really important is that a lot of people hear about microaggressions and they think, well, I didn't mean it that way. And therefore it's okay. And I don't know anybody, anything. And then I think there's this third category that is probably the biggest one. And that is where your intent was not consciously bad but that you have some biases that live deep down in your brain and they sneak out every once in a while. And so we live in a, in a world that teaches us that white people are smarter and better looking and they work harder uh, and that men are more even keeled emotionally uh, and that straight people are more moral and all of these really terrible uh, you know, dynamics that are not true right? These, these, these are not necessarily true statements of fact. And yet society tells us this over and over again, and they sneak into the back of our brain and sometimes they pop out at inopportune moments. And so somebody might very well believe, but I didn't mean it that way. And the truth is there is some truth behind what the person felt when they were on the receiving end of that behavior. And again, good intent never is an excuse for a bad impact. You have to yeah. do something. So when you are at the aggressor's end, so to speak, the mm -hmm. best thing to do is what? Acknowledge what you've done and offer a sincere apology or are there yes. tools? At, at the very beginning, I mean, I, here's how I coach people. When someone comes to you to tell you that you've done something that offended or hurt them, the first thing I tell them to think to themselves is, I don't have to respond to this right now. At the end of this, all I have to say is thank you for telling me that. I appreciate it. And I'm going to think about it. And that's all you really have to say in the moment, because trying to craft your response while someone is talking to you generally makes you come off as defensive. And really what you do is you stop listening and you start debating in your head the validity of what's being said. Just say thank you. Right. And then, and then, you know, say you'll think about it and then do right? I mean, actually follow through with that and give it some thought. Uh, then, yes, you need to apologize. And an apology looks like this. It's taking full accountability for your behavior. It's not conditional. It's not, well, gosh, Nadaj, I'm, I'm sorry if you were offended. The if is a big tell there, right? So it's, it's I'm sorry, I did something wrong. And I take full accountability. 
for what I have done. And here's what I'm going to do. Either I'm not going to repeat that mistake again, or if there's some way that you can make amends, then you do that thing. Um, and that's it. It's a very simple kind of thing. And if you can make amends for what you've done, then, then do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, sometimes it's, it's too late for that. Sometimes all you can do is say, I'm very sorry, and it will not happen again. And then work at it so it doesn't. It's that simple. Fantastic. All right. So now we're going to listen to our very first clip together. So our first recording, uh, every uh, submitter announced who they are. So we've just, we're listening to Susan Dalian. Hi, my name is Susan Dalian, and I'm an actress, director here in Los Angeles, have been for many, many years. And uh, I'm remembering a story where I was at a casting for a, a very big theater company in the Los Angeles area. And I had an audition with the casting director. And after my uh, audition with my monologues, she was very effusive with her praise of how wonderful she thought I was, and then proceeded to say to me, what are you? I mean, what are you? Look at you. Your eyes are like blue. And what are you? Because I'm a black woman with blue eyes. And I did not answer that. And because I didn't answer it, I suppose she came up with her own name and said, you're like a beautiful mutt. You're like a mutt. You're just like this mutt, like this beautiful mutt. And all I kept thinking was this woman, this professional in the career that I chose to be in as a professional just called me a dog. She called me a dog. She's a beautiful mutt, apparently. Oh, that was just painful. <laughs> it's just painful to hear. Um, yeah, I think that is probably one of those things that, first of all, uh, is that a microaggression? I don't know that it is. I mean, I just think that that's, you know, that, that happens. It's one of those things that happens once, and that just hurts right away. Um, but is it, you know, again, and intent does not excuse impact, ever, um, do I believe that this woman meant to offend? No, she probably, weirdly enough, honestly thought she was giving a compliment, but it doesn't matter. Um, that language is inexcusable. Um, and, you know, the fact that, that you know, no one's beauty should necessarily be tied to their racial identity. It, it just, you know, it, it sends a message of, because really what she's saying there is that a dark-skinned black woman with dark hair and dark eyes is not as beautiful. Mm. So not only are you, you're insulting a whole bunch of people, you know, <laughs> when you say that. And it's the idea that undergirds that comment that truly is offensive. I mean, mutt is entirely offensive all on its own, but it also, there's this racist ideology that's underneath that, uh, that I think is just as problematic. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, that was, that was painful to listen to and I'm sure it was painful to live through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, what do you think incidentally, what is, what is with this obsession of knowing where people are from, why they look a certain way, this need to know, what are you? What are you? I mean, that's not uncommon. No, it's not. People, you know, people want, people are curious. They want to know, they know their own story. And I think that it, again, I, it, it might be an innocent enough impulse to just want to know more about someone 
Um, I see this not only in racial uh, diversity, but also especially with the trans community. You know, someone will identify as a trans person and suddenly everyone thinks they deserve to know the exact state of their genitalia. And that's not a question you ask anybody. And no one gave you permission to ask that question simply because they said, I am a trans man or I am a trans woman. That was not an open invitation to start talking about their junk, quite frankly. No, that, that, that conversation is off limits. And if you wouldn't ask somebody else, now when it comes to race, it's interesting because, you know, if, if a white person is talking to another white person and said, have you done your 23andMe, where do you come from? There's not a lot of loaded racial baggage attached to that. And so sometimes it's appropriate in one instance, but it's not in another. The fact is, that if you are an African-American, if you are a, a, an American who is black, chances are, if you've been you know, here for, if your family's been here for generations, part of your genetic makeup are your ancestors' owners, right? And it brings up this horrible curse of slavery that our entire country is built on that is not pleasant conversation for someone who's you know, trying to get a job. And I also want to address the power dynamic uh, in that story. You know, as we said before, you know, actors who are uh, doing this professionally, most of the time you're looking for work. Uh, and so what Susan was, was encountering there is, is not only someone who said something very offensive, but someone who held a lot of power over her, a casting director for a big theater company where she was trying to find work. And so while this casting director can obviously say horrible, insulting things and not think twice about it, Susan cannot return that in kind necessarily or else risk and there's a huge career risk there for right. her and yeah, so, the repercussion the backlash sure and a lot of microaggressions tend to be exhibited by people who have more power than the person who is on the receiving end of that uh and power can come in a lot of ways power can just be being part of a privileged community from an identity standpoint but oftentimes it is the boss the manager or the hiring manager who is behaving in this uninhibited way because they have no reason to censor themselves. There's going to be no repercussions for them. But the person on the receiving end is oftentimes stifled in what they're trying, how to respond to that, because the power dynamic is just always present to the person with less power in mm. any relationship. Got it. Okay. Now we're going to move on to our second clip. Hi, everyone. My name is Antonio Del Valle. I use they series pronouns and I'm Latinx and a composer in the New York City area. So I've had a couple of experiences regarding microaggressions. Um, In college, there was this dance teacher that I had, and I was doing the combination, and the teacher called me out afterwards and said, oh, Antonio, come on, use those Latin hips. You've got those Latin hips, use them. And I was like, really? We're doing that? Um, yeah, so, and then another time, the year after, I think actually it was two years later, there was this, um, musical theater class that I was in, and I was given a scene, it was a solo scene, as the Latin lover, um, and I didn't realize it at the time, I didn't realize why it was bothering me so much, but I was like, oh, yeah, that's why, Um, (laughs) so 
yeah, that was interesting. And then finally, there was this time that I was doing a theater festival out in Western Massachusetts. And I had just gotten a haircut and I had shaved it all off because the barber had given me a really bad haircut. And I come in completely bald. And there's this white girl who comes up and then just starts touching my head. Like, she's so fascinated by it. And I'm like, whoa, what are you doing? And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, you can't touch me. Like, you can't just touch me. And she was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was like, really? Like, we're really doing this. There are many more um, experiences just like that or slight permutations of those experiences. But yeah, those are some microaggressions for me. Really? We're touching people without permission now? (laughs) That has been the bane of a Black woman's existence. And it's fascinating to me to hear that here is Anthony Antonio going through the very same thing. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you work in a, a certain kind of industry. And, you know, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know if I recall, was, he's a dancer, they. A composer. They, yeah. They pronouns, so they. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, Antonio. Uh, they're a dancer. Um, I don't know whether they were part of a dance company for that last story. Uh, but it is one of those things that's interesting that, you know, as a dancer, you are touching your coworkers. Oftentimes in very sensual ways, and lifting them over the head. I mean, I don't know what kind of dance was being done, uh, but dancers generally are involved in physical touch as a part of the work. And so sometimes people do mistake that level of intimacy that happens in a professional context with a level of intimacy that then you can take off stage. And so I don't know whether that might have been going on for this a uh, young woman who who touched their head, um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, Antonio drew a boundary um, and said, "That's not acceptable. You you can't touch my head." And and it sounded like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." And let's just say that that she never touched their head again. Then I guess we're over it. You know, that's actually a pretty good ending to the story. Um, and could Antonio have said? You know, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't touch my head and admit maybe, but nonetheless, in the moment, it's important to not necessarily tone police someone who is being attacked is too strong of a word, but you know, the, the, on the receiving end of a microaggression, it's not important to necessarily monitor their tone as it is to listen to the boundary that's being drawn. Okay. And going backwards, because I kind of latched on to the end. Uh, so his first story at school and then the Latin lover cast, I should say, their first story. I apologize, Antonia. Uh, you know, uh, the the move those Latin hips, I'm sure, again, was a, a meant to be a compliment that, you know, gosh, well, you're of Latinx descent. You must have uh, reservoirs of rhythm that the rest of us mere mortals do not possess. And yet it's still a racist remark. I mean, it's one of those things where you can, and again, we spend so much time, I think, talking about uh, intent as opposed to impact. Uh, And even I have been doing this for 20 years and I find myself still kind of focusing on, well, did they mean it? In a way to excuse the behavior. And I think it can be an important point of context. I don't want to, to skip that over. But it is something that at the end of the day, 
that kind of remark, if it is not received well, and if it's not taken as a compliment, needs to be addressed and needs to be fixed. And, and hopefully this particular dance captain has heard that feedback at some point uh, in his or her career and has made amends somehow. Mm. Okay. Thank you. The Latin lover piece. I think that's just, you know, that's, that's, that's typecasting. I mean, I, you could probably speak to that as well as anybody. I think that's just, you know, even when I was a young theater student, I heard from professors who were honestly trying to help me out. Eric, this is the kind of role you're probably going to be cast as a lot. So let's put you in it uh, again and again and again. So you can explore all the flavors of this particular thing. Now, as a young, white, able-bodied man, those roles were pretty wide and varied still for me. I didn't feel like I was being pigeonholed in any kind of way. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that is, it, it's the reality of the business. Then how do you teach someone to step into an unfortunate reality? I mean, I think the fact that there's so much typecasting that happens with people of color is a real problem. I am on the fence as to whether or not a teacher who is trying to prepare you for the types of roles you're probably going to come up for a lot whether they're doing anything, and maybe they need to explain that. Maybe they just need to be very upfront and transparent about, look, this is an imperfect world, but you have this particular look. Acting is one of those professions where you can draw some ethnic boundaries over who you want to hire for a particular job. It happens all the time. Uh, it's considered okay and to do that uh, sometimes, and non-traditional casting is happening more and more, which is great. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little on the fence on that one. I, 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 I stymied. Yeah, well, lest we forget, too, I mean, roles for the Caucasian male is never uh, lacking. Uh, I come from the belief that when, when you're in school, especially, and, I'm, and I think they were a, a student, a theater student at the time, uh, that is when opportunities, skies should be the limits. That is when you should play roles that are non-traditional. A good professor, a good program should encourage students who don't look traditional to push the boundaries. When I was in uh, my grad program, I remember having a, I don't even want to say well-meaning writer, but come to me and say, why don't you do Raisin in the Sun instead? And I said to them, because there will be plenty of time in my career in the professional world to play, to be uh, in the Raisin of the Sun. In fact, there are three women's, three generations I can cover. In my 20s, I can be Benita. In my 30s, I can do the other one. And in my 60s, 70s, maybe play the mom. But let can we not? And they can't see that. Like, Why force me to narrow my opportunities and my ability to stretch and grow right now when I'm going into debt to learn from you. So I'm a little incensed with that one. And I think I understand where uh, they are coming from, Antonio, when he was like, really, Latin lover? Like, yeah, Let, why couldn't he be the lead? So that's yeah, that. totally, yeah. No, thank you for that. It's a totally valid perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and it's, and, and you know, again, I, I, when I think back to my own experience, I was always told, uh, Eric, you're not really good at playing people who are dense. Like there's this, you know, you're a big guy, you could be, a, but that's just, we've decided that's not where your talents lie. It takes a special kind of talent actually to play that well, to know more than your character, but not necessarily reveal it. Because, Eric, you're not that person I see you thinking all the time. So let's focus you over here. And again, to your point, I still had so much to choose from. 
Exactly. And, and I would say bad teacher, because let's give Eric the opportunity whilst he's here paying to learn to stretch. Why can't you learn how to play a dense character? Yeah. I'm super intelligent, but I play stupid very well. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, no, it's that. A, but that, I know. I, I had the opportunity kind of to stretch that muscle. So, okay. I'm glad that you and I aren't exactly on the same page at all the time. And thank you so very much, Antonio, for your submission because you're allowing this conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, we are moving to our third uh, piece. Here we go. Hi, my name is Takenya Banks. I am based out of Dallas, Texas, and I have been professionally acting for about three or four years. I have a heavy base in theater background, couple film credits, but nothing major, mostly like featured extra, extra work. So I booked a commercial, first commercial, and I was super excited. I pulled up, major brand, everybody knows about it. I pull up and I was so excited because there were so many African-Americans. I was like, yay, oh my God, we did great. We're booking. Get in there, everybody's super nice. Um, we're waiting around all day. You know how it is, hurry up and wait. Um, they're coming and they're pulling, pe picking people out of the crowd, like you, 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 you come, you come. Um, we're gonna set you up here. We're gonna have you be a group, have you be a couple, right? So we switch scenes and the director is there and I'm standing, I've been chosen to be, um, you know, as the camera pans around, I'll be um, featured in the scene. And there's a scene where he's like, okay, everybody join together. Everybody just kind of go crazy. Look like you're having fun. And the director comes up and he says, I guess it was the, the, the person who was over. He was like, oh, he's, they're going to have a fit. The corporation, they're going to have a fit. There are too many of them, too many of them right here. And he says out loud, hey, we need not so many tans right here in the front. If we can get a lot of some of the tan, you know, people to go to, towards, towards the back and get some more of the lighter, you know, some um, clear, some more lighter skinned um, people up here. You, you come here, you here. And they were clearly all white Caucasian people he was calling up. And the tans were us, the black people. And he was like, yeah, just all the tans are so, it's so much tan up front. It's so heavy with the tan. We want to, you know, make sure that we are, um, have a good mixture. So just get all the tans to move to the back. Okay. And I was like, wow, this is, I had to look around to say, is this just happening? Like, is this, wow. Yeah. And I just kind of looked at him. He didn't have any facial expression, no remorse. It was just, I think he thought he was being cordial about it and politically correct. Um, it was very interesting. Very interesting. So Eric, yours truly always thought of herself as a 10, but turns out I'm a town. <laughs> that is yeah, awful. I'm I can only laugh apparently, apparently I'm translucent. I, you know, I'm just, I, you can see right through me. Um, yeah, that, uh, you know, I think that, that to Kenya's uh, instinct is, I think I agree with her. I think there's this sense of, you know, political correctness gone too far that I don't want to say black people and I don't want to say white people. So I, I have a mental block around those words and what comes out is 10 times worse. Uh, you know, the tans. I mean, what does that even, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think I hear that story 
And I, I think to myself, how, first of all, is that even a necessary comment to make? It sounds as though when she tells the story that all the people of color were in front and what the end of the story was is that all of the people of color moved to the back. So shades of Rosa Parks, you know, in that particular tale. Um, the way it sounded to me halfway through the story, though, was that the crowd is looking a little segregated, and we want the crowd to be a diverse group of integrated people who are all having a really good time together. And that's really important to the selling of this particular product. And I think sometimes you just say that. You just say that. You know, it's like we have, you know, all the people are tend to be in these racial clumps. Can we mix it up a little bit? And then just let people, you know, let people hear that. Actually, and Eric, it actually sounded to me, and this is probably left up to interpretation, yeah. that the too many of them was there were too many black people in the front. Yeah. And the clients were going to be really upset because this person, apparently too many blacks are surrounding this, yep. this famous star. And they wanted more of the people who look like the star, perhaps, more of the yeah. whites in the front and the blacks in the back. It wasn't like well, yeah. mix them up. No. And it sounded, yeah, when it got to the end of the story, it sounded as though, oh, so all the black people were basically removed from the front of the line, which is then just terrible, yes. right? So I was halfway through the story, I was kind of like, okay, well, I can see where they might want to have a, you know, they, they hired a diverse group of people. You assume that they wanted to, you know, and I tell people all the time, I work with a lot of bad agencies, and I'm like, you know, the problem with having an all-white team on an account is that you're going to know really well how to market to one kind of consumer, but how much better could your clients do if all kinds of people wanted to buy their product? And so, you know, having a diverse group of people not only writing the ads, but appearing in the ads can be really important uh, to your work. Um, yeah, I mean, that sounds terrible on a couple of levels. And again, the, the words are what we tend to fixate on, the tans versus the clears, which is ridiculous. But the, the, the more disturbing part of it is if we have too many black people in this ad, people are going to be upset. Why? Do you not want black customers? Do you not want black consumers? Do you not want black people to think that this is a product worth buying? Why? I mean, that, it's, it's a dumb business call, but it's also, you know, it's hurtful and it's offensive. Right. Okay, moving on to our next story. That is story number four. Hi, my name is Rachel Steed. I'm from Austin, Texas, and I've been an actor for 17 years and a producer for the last six. Uh, I started acting when I was 14. It was really the, uh, the first place I ever found myself feeling comfortable um, and really enjoying myself. I'm, I'm biracial, Japanese and Scottish, and um, a lot of my, uh, my history with microaggressions and my experience of microaggressions comes from my eyes, primarily. Uh, I, am, I have squinty eyes. I'm, I'm biracial Asian, and I have Asian eyes. Um, I wear glasses a lot of the time, so I think a lot of directors don't understand how the glasses... Uh, magnify the size of my eyes until I take them off and um, I'm frequently asked to do my eye makeup in such a way that my eyes look whiter uh, and the the excuse that's always used is well you can't see your eyes from the audience like the audience can't see your eyes and truthfully that's not a real it's not a real reason that's not a real excuse um, they can <laughs> they can see my eyes just fine 
uh, from the audience without having to do extra things to my eyes to make them look bigger or wider. Um, this has happened so many times throughout my career that I honestly, I don't really have like specific examples <laughs> um, that I can name. Um, but it, I mean, it, it continues to happen. It's happened within the last year. I was asked to do my eye makeup differently so that my eyes would look wider. And, and I don't, I don't do it. I, sometimes I'll say, no, I'm not doing that. That's inappropriate. And sometimes I'll say, okay, and go away for 10 minutes and come back. And they'll be like, great, that looks so much better. And I didn't do anything. Um, I'm not going to, you know, I can't stop or help the way my eyes look. And I wouldn't if I could. Um, so it's, it's constant. And then the other, the other side of it is, um, if they need an, an Asian actor, they need an Asian character, and I'm the only person who showed up to audition that is Asian, they'll often ask me to exaggerate my features so I look more Asian, which is also problematic and wrong. Um, overall, the, the moral of the story is don't cast shows you don't have people for. And don't ask people to change their appearance. <laughs> if it's not required for the show, you shouldn't be asking it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my experience. Oh, Rachel, 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 poor thing. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, no words from me. I mean, I, when I first heard this, I was just like mouth agape, like what? Yeah. Yeah. And it just, you know, the, our biggest enemy oftentimes is ignorance, right? This is not, it doesn't sound like, again, somebody is necessarily out to be hateful and yet the impact is such that it's painful uh and so it, it it doesn't matter that the intent was born out of not knowing better uh but one of the reasons why i do what i do and i always tell people at the end is like now what it's like well now that you know better you have to do better um and the truth is is that people who belong to these majority groups whether it's white people men straight people cisgender people what I call temporarily able-bodied people, because disability is one of those identities that can come upon you at any moment. The people who are disenfranchised in this world know a whole lot more about you than you know about them. And that's just the truth, because the world is built for the people who are in those power groups. And the people who are not in those power groups still have to navigate that world, and they end up learning a whole lot about you. And you don't have to know anything about them to get through your day. So I don't need to know what Rachel goes through each and every day to get through it because it doesn't stop me from living my life. Uh, and ignorance is just as painful as out and out hatred uh, and me trying to do what I can to belittle her uh, or ruin her day. Um, you know, I hope these folks learn. Um, and I'm glad that sometimes she does. I don't blame her for sometimes. Do I, I actually did chuckle, I will admit. None of these stories are really funny. But when she said, sometimes I just go away for 10 minutes and I come back and they're like, oh, that's great. And she probably just kind of rolls her eyes and go, all right, fine. Uh, but I'm glad that sometimes she does say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's not appropriate for you to ask me and I'm not going to do it because those kinds of boundary settings, I know that people will think, oh, you're just so sensitive and, you know, all of this woke PC nonsense and why do we do this? But that's how people learn. And it's not always fun to learn that you're doing something that is not okay. I mean, but it's important. It is so ridiculous to ask her, can you look more Asian? Like, what the hell does that even mean? It's just, I'm just, yeah, this, I, I want to apologize to her for even having, for having to even deal with that. It's just, yeah. 
it's offensive and, and hurtful, you know, and um, I'm not wanting to take anything away from Rachel's story or even this time of hers. I liken this to when a black person sounds educated, they want to know either where you're from, how is it that you sound this way? And personally for me, I think President Obama, because prior to Obama, they would always ask me, can you sound more like, all right, I'm just going to say it. Can you just sound black? <laughs> F does that even mean? Yeah. Visually, I'm black. So what, I have to sound it to? Wait, because you're not going to believe me from the looks of me? And for some reason, once Obama came to power, became the president, uh, and the one thing people say, well, he's so well-spoken. He's so well-spoken. But you know what? The one thing I got out of that is that they have stopped asking me to sound black. Thank God. So, but you know what I still hear all the time is one of the most popular microaggressions that I that that gets brought up to me uh, is when a black person is referred to as articulate. Yes. You know, and that is, and it's, and again, it's, and people say, but that's a compliment, right? It's like it's only a compliment. You never compliment me that way, because guess what? You're not surprised that I can put two sentences together, and so it doesn't strike you as weird or unusual. And a black person knows what you're doing when they, when you call them articulate, you know, it means that it's such a shock to me that you can speak correctly. Yeah. And it's not a compliment. And how dare you? I'm not, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not flattering to me. Now, if you want to say that somebody is a really inspiring speaker, that's great. That's great. You know, but say what you mean, you know, even sometimes I still hear articulate being used when somebody is truly an amazing public speaker, like you want them on that stage, they're great. They're going to whip that crowd into a frenzy, you know, but you use the same words that you would use to describe anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, it's lazy to just fall back on some of these tropes that you have not thought through because again, the world doesn't force you to think through any of these things because you can get through your day just fine without giving them a moment's thought. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Moving on to our fifth. Here we go. Hi, my name is Isabel. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, by way of Brooklyn, New York. I've been an actress and a writer professionally, meaning just getting paid and SAG level jobs uh, for about five or six years now. Uh, and here's what I experienced on set of a network television show. Um, so the extras uh, normally eat last. Um, and the day players and the, the staff and everyone, they eat first. And I remember coming down with a PA, fully, fully costumed, <laughs> um, and asking the chef questions about food. And he was very short with me. And he kept like looking past me. And then he pointed to the extras table. And I was like, no, I'm a day player. And this is why I'm here early. And I tried to explain to him, but he pointed me away. Because I don't know, for some reason, he just couldn't imagine that I was not a day player, <laughs> uh, which means someone who just shows up for one or two episodes of a television show. Until um, finally the PA had to come and escort me back to the table and just let him know that I was allowed to eat early. And he sort of grumbled and looked down in a way. And yeah, it was an unfortunate experience. <laughs> So with this story, doesn't it, this doesn't come from a person who has much power. I mean, we're talking about a chef here on a set. Yeah. The person yeah. Who's well, in the kitchen. The hell? And, and, and let me tell you what I'm filling in. Now, Isabel did not tell us her race 
or the race of the chef. But I made up a story. How about you? Uh, I actually didn't think of it. I mean, I didn't think of that story. I just yeah. thought, oh my God, you're, the, you're, the, you're behind that food truck. Like, who, yeah. who the yeah. hell are you? In my mind, this chef is, is clearly a white guy, like in my <laughs> head, the way that I put that out there. And Isabel is either a woman of color or very young or both. And so those were, that, that's kind of the, the setup that I have in my head. So Isabel, if I'm getting any of that wrong, I apologize, but that's the story I made up in my head as you were speaking. But and I actually, you, yeah. And do you want to know what she is? Sure. She is African-American. Okay. She is a young woman. <laughs> okay. So, okay. I, I intuited it correctly. Um, yes, not going to say I got it right because, you know, I always have to be mindful of the stories you're making up, right? So I always want to catch myself when I, I don't want to take anything for granted. But um, there are forms of power that are not necessarily hierarchical. Um, and if this chef was a white man and she is a young woman of color, there's a sense of power just in that. Um, you know, people in power know a lot less about people without it than vice versa. And as we just discussed, the same is true for the chef. He doesn't know what Isabel goes through on a daily basis. He doesn't know what kinds of messages she has received, both in terms of uh, racist messages being flung at her, but also... I'm imagining more than one talk with a uh, mother or other parental figure about how you're going to have to get through this world with a thicker skin because this is the kind of crap you're going to hear throughout your entire life. And that's a talk that I think is important for young women of color to hear, but it's also very clear to me that no one ever had to have that talk with me. No one ever had to steal me for the kinds of harsh realities that I would be in touch with daily because guess what? I'm not. And so in a sense, was my childhood happier probably because of that, because I didn't worry about how cruel the world was going to be when I got out because you're just not burdened with any of that stuff. Uh, and so it, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, you know, and I'm glad that Isabel had an ally. Um, it's too bad that it didn't work out that she couldn't just tell this person, Oh, I'm a day player. And he didn't just say, Oh, I'm very sorry. He didn't believe her. It sounds like she spoke up and he didn't believe her. He either didn't believe her or he didn't want to admit that he was wrong, which is two slightly different things. Sometimes people know they're wrong, but they're just not going to admit it because to do so, uh, you know, I, I think about our current president actually in that realm a lot. There is absolute data and proof that says you were wrong about this, but you'll never hear those words come out of that mouth because to admit one is wrong is to all of a sudden be a loser. You know, yeah, and so, yeah. And so there might, be, there might've been a little bit of that going on. You know, it's like, I realize you're a day player. You just told me that, but I'm not going to apologize because that puts you in a more powerful position than I am suddenly. It's not true, but you know, whatever. Uh, and I, I'm, I just refuse to do it. And so don't burden me with this. Now I feel guilty. And to push my guilt away, I'm just going to pretend the whole thing never happened. And people in power can sometimes do that. Mm. Okay, well, uh, now we move on to our next, uh, sixth submission. Hi, my name is Charmaine Merriweather, but I go by Chamari. I was born in Okinawa, Japan, but I grew up primarily in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I currently live in Kansas City, Missouri. So I've been in the entertainment industry, I would say, pretty much my whole life, but I would say that I've only really been doing it professionally for like the last five or six years. So I have a couple of stories that really stand out in my mind, but I think the um, 
first really one where I, I started paying attention to it was when I was in college and my costume designer slash hairstylist, uh, she was meeting with me and she, and I was the only person of color or black person in the play. And she was meeting with me and she handed me some pictures of some hairstyles that she wanted me to do. And she wasn't very familiar with ethnic hair. And I told her that, you know, those styles were certain haircuts and my hair wouldn't do those styles because my hair was not cut in a way that would accommodate those styles. And so she was just like, okay, whatever, just do whatever you need. Um, in the meantime, she was doing all these really intricate hairstyles for all of my white cast counterparts. Um, you know, like I remember one girl, she had bone straight hair that would not hold any curls. And so she would get start really early, like two or three hours early and get this hot rod roller set and roll all her air hair intricately and pin it in all these different ways. And that was just one of the girls in the show. She had so many intricate details for everybody else except me. And she did the same for my makeup. She had all these different ideas and all these things that really just enhanced their characters. But for me, she was just like, um, I don't do black girls makeup. And just do what you want. And then she would just watch me do my makeup. And she would just say, oh, I just don't know how to do black people's makeup. And no one had a problem with that. No one thought that was an issue. And honestly, in the moment, I just kind of took it as this is how it is. But now that I'm older and I pay way more attention to injustices, you know, I had a, a big issue with it where it's just like all of my counterparts had someone to make them look their best and be their best and really embody their characters. Whereas I wasn't given that same courtesy, even though we were all equal, so to speak. Um, I would say another instance that really stood out to me, but this one was more like in your face egregious is when I was in another play and I was also the only person of color in the play and the lead in the play was clearly uncomfortable. Like she didn't know how to interact with me. And, um, she just kept making passing statements that she, that was her attempt at relating to me. And I remember being inside of the dressing room at one point and I don't even know how she got onto this tangent, but she said something to the impact of, uh, effect of, I'm so sad that I'm a girl, a white girl, but my hair, I'm skinny white girl with my pretty hair, eyes, etc., etc. And I just wish that I could struggle like you do. Like, or she didn't say like you do. She said like, like, like. I just wish I could struggle, but it was implied the like you do. <laughs> and um, she just starts talking about if she would cast this play, she would put a person of color as the lead instead of a white girl like her and just you know really started going on and on and I just wanted to slap the crap out of her but luckily my other white castmates totally stood up for me handled that told me not to do anything and they really did handle that really well so I didn't have to do anything about it um then the third thing that kind of stood out for me is um I was on a set for a commercial for a national commercial and I had a white hairstylist and makeup artist and which was fine she was honestly one of the best makeup artists I've had to date 
she knew all her stuff. She knew what to do. She was wonderful. And she, she had me looking great. And um, there was a scene where she asked me, or not she, but the, you know, the directors asked me to put my hair under a hat. And I have type four hair. I would say it's about type four ABC, depending on the day, you know, the weather. <laughs> and, um, it's, you know, it's really puffy. It's really, it's really, um, dense. And so I was, I brushed it back and I let her grab my hair and she pulled it under the cap for me. No big deal. That's her job. And then she kind of leans it. She like her hand kind of lingers on my hair for a moment, which again, no big deal. I didn't think anything much of it, but then she leans in and like with her hands on my shoulders in a little bit of a creepy manner. And she just whispers in my ear, thank you for letting me touch your hair. It's so soft and well taken care of. <laughs> and as, then she made me feel a little weak. It, she made me feel like I should not have let her touch my hair. And, you know, with our, with the way that people view textures like mine that aren't silky, curly hair, they assume that my hair is dirty. They assume that I don't wash it. They assume that um, it's rough. And my hair is actually really soft and really taken care of. And I put so much product in it and I wash it regularly, like every couple of days. And um, so, you know, her statement just had some of those racial implications of what she was really thinking that I had that had never even crossed my mind. But just what she was really thinking about who I was and what my hair meant. Um, So, yeah. So those are some of the instances I have. So many, but those are the three big ones that just kind of stand out in my career so far of just things that pointed out that I was a black woman, not just an actress. I'm just gonna let you take the lead on that one for me. Okay, okay. So we got three stories there, yeah. and I've got something. I've got a response to you know a pretty strong response to each one. The first one, right? She tells a story about uh, working with a hairdresser who's being employed to prepare actors to walk on stage and is not qualified to do her job, right? I mean, that's just use very language. She's not qualified because she can only do hair of particular texture and particular, you know, and so this is where I'm really reminded of so much of my work is that racism and other forms of discrimination are often experienced at a very individual level. And it sounds like it's a story between this actor and this hairdresser. When the fact is this is a systemic problem, right? The company has hired someone and not checked out their qualifications because if you are a theater company and you're hiring someone to do hair and makeup, one of the questions you need to ask is, can you do the hair and makeup for any actor who could walk through this door? And if the answer is I can only work with white people, then guess what? That person should not get that job. And there's something wrong with the system that allows that to even happen. Now, I see a lot of behaviors from that hairdresser trying to, you know, knowing that she's incompetent and masking it by saying, oh, just do whatever you want. And still acting like I'm in charge, even though I have to admit to you that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's that's a huge problem. Um, and, you know, not great in terms of behaviors. And, you know, unfortunately, what, what happened was she did not get the benefit of having the same level of 
care that all of the other actors in this production received. I learned how to do my own makeup in school, but I hated it. And whenever somebody could say, oh, I could do that for you, I'm like, oh, please, sit back. Because not only because I didn't really enjoy it, but I would look better, right? I wouldn't look like I had pancake makeup over my face. The second story, (laughs) the whole, gosh, I wish I could struggle. Um, I got to tell you something. Let me tell you a little secret about white people that not a whole lot of people know. Mm. We want to come to the cookout so bad, right? (laughs) Just don't bring your potato salad. It sucks. I'm sorry. No reasons in my potato salad, I promise. Um, (laughs) But if if you don't know what that means, white listeners, let me just kind of, you know, the cookout is this metaphorical place where black people go to be away from white nonsense. And if a white person is allowed to come to the cookout, then they're the one who gets it, right? And so we are allowed to, but guess what? Most white people, especially the ones who really want to come to the cookout really, really bad, they haven't paid their way. They haven't done the work to understand them. And, and it's one of those things that the more work you do, the more you realize that sometimes people who belong to disenfranchised communities actually need to have their own space just so they don't have to watch everything they say, just so they don't have, they can just live for an afternoon free of some of these societal. Yeah. You know, and so this hasn't been mentioned yet, but I'm part of the LGBT community and I feel it when I'm in a gay only space and I don't have to worry about what a straight person might think of me. If I said X, Y, Z, it's freeing. It's nice, you know, and there are a couple of, straight people that I know who can come into that space and I still feel the same way because they're an ally and they get it. And I feel still that same level of comfort and it's rare. And so I get it, you know, but this white woman wants to go to that cookout so bad, but she hadn't done the work. She clearly does because the the truth is the more she learned about this nation's history, lady, you don't want to struggle like that. You don't. You don't. I mean, it sounds like bullshit as soon as she says it. And so <laughs> immediately, you know, it's just, that's just silly. And, you know, I, I would love to hear your take on that. On that. You could probably speak to that much more so than, than well, I could. Let me just quickly say this, because it, this actually reminds me, and I don't know what, what this woman's MO was or, or agenda or what it was, but I remember having an actress said to me, God, you're such a good actress. And it's got to be because you've struggled got it because your life has been really really hard so in a way i wonder if there wasn't this sort of uh admission of 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 um uh what's that called imposter syndrome mm-hmm. you know maybe this fellow actress felt in her heart of hearts that perhaps uh, uh charmaine deserved to be a lead so who knows? It's either that or like, I want to suffer so much because I want to feel. And yeah. as an actor, I'd be so much better if I knew pain. Yeah. Um, now can I have my mint julep on the veranda? <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's not, re- and, and I think this is also something where you can get into a whole other, I, have you ever done a show about what the fuckery is method acting? Cause that could just be a whole thing, right? You know, I don't necessarily, I am a little bit, you know, as time has gone on, a little bit more on team Laurence Olivier and less so on team Dustin Hoffman. If you've heard that funny story, it's like, my dear boy, why don't you just try acting? Um, You know, I mean, sometimes your imagination can do things and you don't actually have to suffer, suffer, suffer. Um, But yeah. Kudos, 
kudos to the castmates who told her, don't do anything, we'll take care of it. And took care of it. Not just don't do anything, but probably took that woman aside and said, what you just said is wrong in all kinds of ways and let us tell you why. The final one, I'm, I apologize to Charmin. I was laughing the whole way through it. That creepy whisper, thank you for letting me touch her. I mean, it's a cringy kind of laugh, but it was just like, oh my God. And again, I, I just noticed with myself that I'm inclined to want to forgive her because she's clearly ignorant. She just doesn't know. Like that is so, you know, and I think to myself, and again, this is, I mean, I sound like the woman we just finished making fun of. It's like, you're a woman. You know what it's like to be in the receiving end of a creepy, ew, kind of come. Like, why do you say that? You know, but clearly she doesn't know anything outside of her own experience. Um, and it's, you know, what's also interesting about that story is that Charmaine had no problem with it until we started getting the creepy whisper. What I noticed, though, what I heard, is that Charmaine needed to take a little bit of time out of her story to assure you and me and anyone else who might be listening that I wash my hair. And yeah, I take it was sad to me that she had to explain, like, just explain all this. You yeah, know? because and the fact is because a lot of people don't know that. That's the sad part, is that even in the midst of telling the story, which should just be ridiculous on its face, it actually requires some explanation so that everyone listening to the show can hear that there actually is, that this is the reality, right? Okay. And that, that made me a little sad in the midst of this really funny story. And, and while we're at it, I'm going to set the record straight right now, too. Because earlier on, I, I talked, you know, I made a crack about hair, 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 how it drives me crazy, the bane of my existence. Here's the problem. This fascination with needing to touch our hair has got to stop. And I'll tell, I'll explain why for the white listeners. It is because it's a reminder of property. It's a reminder of I own you and I get to touch you without my, without your permission. And so uh, my lovers have absolute permission to touch my hair. My family does, but you the perfect stranger, you don't get to do that. Can I touch your hair? Why? Do I ever walk up to you and ask you to touch hair? White people, do black people walk up to you and say, hey, can I touch your hair? Or do we just like put our hands on you? If we did that, all hell would break loose. Wouldn't all hell break loose? Oh, that's interesting. We have a story about hair, don't we? Uh -huh. oh, I'm just saying, you know, yeah, no, I, I can't imagine. You know, like that's, yeah. that, that rarely ever happens to me. You know, yeah. only when someone is flirting with me and we're clearly flirting, and I've returned the flirt to someone ever feel like they can start running their fingers through my hair. And typically, at that point, it's a welcome gesture. But no, it would absolutely not be yeah. in any other I mean, I'm looking at you through this, and I, you have great hair. I'd want to like, woo, Eric, hi. <laughs> but I would do that after we're friends, and it's cool, yeah. and you do it. And that's fine, yeah. but like a perfect, don't do that. Like, just yeah. don't. Well, yeah. it kind of, you know, it reminds me of the Antonio story, right? Because yeah. some people felt the need to, to touch their hair as well. And, you know, it, when the relationship supports a certain behavior, then it's okay. And not all relationships are the same. Guess what? Antonio might have had a friend at that company who could touch their head. Yeah. And it would and be fun. But it's not okay for you. Just be, you know, and so if I witness somebody running their fingers through your hair, it doesn't make it okay for me to just say, oh, well, your hair is now common property and I can just take a turn. No, no. I mean, bodies are, you know, uh, you have agency over your, but you should. 
you should have agency over your body. And, and, you know, no one gets to touch it unless you say it's okay. Yeah. And it's complete invasion of personal space. How I might react to you, perfect stranger walking up to me and touching my hair may not be what you expect. It may be violent. And then who's, who's wrong? I would be wrong, right? Because I had a violent reaction towards you in response to your invasion of my personal space. Hey, you're, six you're, feet apart is not a is not is not a mistake, you know. <laughs> yeah, Literally, the amount of space you need so that your personal space can can live. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you're doing a great job of setting up Sean's audio, aren't you? I, it just it worked out beautifully, Sean. <laughs> okay, guys, you're gonna love this one. Hang on a sec. Here we go. Hi. I'm Sean. I live in Los Angeles. I like to go out. I'm a social being. Um, One of these nights, it had to have been the summer of 2008, leaving one of the newest restaurants, had a great meal with my girlfriends. We are dressed to the nine. My hair is big, curly, moisturized, highlighted, just absolutely the beautiful crown that it is. And we are leaving the restaurant and uh, I got surrounded by five white people. One being a guy and maybe six, maybe, I don't know. It it felt like I was being surrounded by a clan. And uh, this clan felt the need, well, he felt the need to touch my hair and tell them how soft it was. Well, I didn't like that. So I slapped him in his face and they were taken back by my quote violence. And that was uncalled for. And uh, she said, well, the friend that was with him said that what was the problem? What was the big deal? I had beautiful hair. Why, why can't they touch it? And I said, well, would you appreciate someone coming up to you and just touching your hair? And she said, well, I don't think it's a big deal. I said, well, your hair is not as good as mine. So maybe that's why you don't have a problem with it. And they just could not understand why I was so upset that my newly washed, deep conditioned, glistening, moisturized, freshly trimmed, beautiful halo of a crown should not be touched. The fact that they felt that I was a part of their property was the thing that annoyed me so much. Um, I, I feel like white people who do these things, feel that they have ownership over us. It must be some instinctual, ancestral uh, uh, link that they have. But when I slapped him in his face, they were really taken back. And he didn't even respond. He just kept going, well, I think your hair is beautiful. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't know you. Your energy clearly is disruptive and not something that I want in my space. So I say that to say that them giving me compliments was something that they thought would uh, override him um, uh, space invading me. Because I felt like that was there was so many things wrong with this issue, him touching me. It was a violation. It was... I mean, like I said, 
you don't know where people's hands are. You don't know what kind of energy they carry. And him feeling that he had ownership because it was nice and pretty to look at, that he could touch it, was unreal. And so after I slapped him and the girl kept going, I don't understand and da 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 da, I looked at her and I really looked at her like hard, like, do you want, you want to get slapped too? I had no problem slapping somebody in the middle. I literally was slapping them in the middle of a restaurant. The restaurant was on Cahuenga between Hollywood and Sunset. So it was one of the newer restaurants. I remember like it was yesterday. And the funny thing about it was that the hostess that was at the stand was a black girl and she just had the biggest smile on her face. So I say that to say is please, please, especially now, now you think about it, like you don't want anybody touching you. But back then, you know, this was 2008 that they still feel that certain people, certain white people still feel that they can just do whatever they want without any consequences. And if they give you a compliment, that is a part of their underlying microaggression. Uh, And I'm not having it. I'm not having it now. I'm not having it ever. And that's it. Well, I'm glad the rant I went on <laughs> kind of <laughs> led into Sean's story beautifully. Now, I, I full disclosure, um, Susan and uh, Sean were previous guests. They were part of the interracial love bid that I did. These women are married to white men. Sean is married to a white man. So uh, let's just be clear. There was no personal anti feeling there that I know of personally. Listen, you know, I mean, I think you're allowed to be anti anybody who invades your space the way that you described, you know, uh, listen, I'm sure Sean's husband gets to touch her hair for the reasons that you just, you know, stated. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to add to Sean's story because what, what, what I was thinking as I was listening to it, kind of all of my interpretation, she kind of came right out and said, it is that notion of, I will help myself to your body and I'm allowed to do that. And guess what? No, you're not. You're just not. Um, Good for her for slapping him. Yeah, you know, I, I, I typically, you know, don't think that violence is a, you know, a, a, yes. but, but again, she was, I don't think assaulted is too strong a word. You know, somebody helped themselves to her body and she was saying in a very physical way to respond, oh, no, you don't. You know, yes. she drew a boundary. And listen, you know, no one wants to get slapped but at the same time. He got over it. I'm sure he doesn't carry physical scars to this day, but he remembers that moment. And hopefully he'll never walk up to another black woman on the street and help himself to a handful of her hair. Right. I agree. You know, the violence, of course, is never the answer, but it is that visceral reaction that you have when you're being attacked in a, you you feel it's a perceived threat. It's a perceived threat. Walk up to you and grab a handful of your head. Yeah. I mean, when, and a stranger on the street doing that to you, and again, they're, you know, we're talking mostly about race, but there's also a gender dynamic going on. A man who walks up to a woman on the street and helps himself to her body needs to be put in his place real fast. And she did it. And so, yeah, I'm not saying that, you know, any, anybody who slights you needs to get slapped, but I'm actually, I'm okay with Sean's reaction this time. And, and if Sean had a moment to kind of breathe and think what to do, she might have decided to respond verbally, but I cannot blame her in the moment. 
her amygdala told her she was in danger and she needed to do something about it because his actions are what caused that situation to happen. Absolutely. All right. On to a, the, what, the, the one before our final piece. And here it is. Hey there. This is Bernard K. Addison. Um, I'm an actor. I've been in Los Angeles since 2000. I've been acting for well over close to 40 years now. Um, you can wonder or guess that in 40 years, I have a lot of stories. And so it was very interesting to get this uh, request for stories of microaggressions. I will choose to tell this story because this is probably the most recent story. And it's also a story that doesn't... Uh, preclude me as an actor. I was actually um, a patron, but not really a patron. What uh, my job was at um, this theater, um, it's the Mark Taper Forum, Center, Center Theater Group. My job um, for this particular production was to be a facilitator for audience discussion. I do this uh, for a number of shows. And this year, I was hired to be the main audience facilitator for all the shows, um, including the ones that we didn't get to see for uh, due to um, COVID-19. There was a heralded production of August Wilson's Jitney. Um, it was uh, the Broadway revival that won the Tony Award for Best Play. Um top-of-the-line actors, top-of-the-line director, probably one of the best realized sets I'd seen, um, and really a full, engaging experience into the work of August Wilson. It was lauded. It was heralded. It was, you know, um, thought of as being one of the finer productions of an August Wilson play. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to love it or that's uh, their cup of tea. And so you have to sort of like make sure that even though me as a professional looking at it and seeing the level of quality and expertise, there may be somebody there that, you know, sees it differently and you have to honor opinions. So this one particular night, um, I had invited a student of mine, a former student of mine, who now currently lives in San Francisco. She's working with the education department at San Francisco Opera. She's a Korean American. And so she was excited to see it. She had already participated in the August Wilson monologue competition when she was in high school. So she was very excited to do it. And so I gave her my ticket. I was downstairs watching the show on the monitor. Um, as I was walking, uh, watching the show on the monitor, uh, doing work, making notes of like how the audience is taking the show this evening so I could be engaged with them when I talk to them after the show. The elevator door opens, and this uh, slightly inebriated white man comes out. And I think he's looking for the bathroom. And so I don't really say anything because eventually they figure it out and they go to the correct bathroom. But he's sort of there and he's sort of like sighing and humming and walking around and everything. And he spots me and I'm on my computer and I'm working. That doesn't stop him from coming up to me 
and interrupting me at work and saying, excuse me, excuse me, uh, do you work here? Are you in the cast? What do you do? So these interrogating questions. And I'm like, well, uh, I do work here. No, I'm not in the cast. Well, <laughs> what do you think of the show? I'm like, um, I'm going to, I'm here to find out what people think of the show. Well, I just think it's horrible. I just think it's awful. I think it's just, what is going on on stage? They're just like, they're just shucking and jiving and they're not paying attention to each other and stereotypes over the place. I couldn't stand it. I could, I had to get out. I had to get out, you know, and, you know, I can understand people not understanding culture. But to not understand culture and then to turn it into shucking and jiving really raised my antenna on this man. And I didn't say anything to him. I just let him sort of like go through it. And he's sort of like, well, I guess I must be missing something. I must be in the wrong for something. And so he sat down and he was there. And the monitor is on, and I'm watching the monitor, and I'm doing my work. An usher comes down to get ready to do their prep for intermission. And he yells to the usher, can you do me a favor? Can you, is there any way to shut this off or turn this monitor off? I can't stand it. I can't stand it. And I had to step up and say, I'm sorry, I'm working. I'm watching this. This has to stay on. And he said, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Near the end of the first act of the play, there is a very highly charged, emotionally dramatic confrontation between the father and the son. It's the high point emotionally of the play, and it really invests everybody. And he watches it. And he goes, well, this is better. This is better. I like this. Have they, they changed the actors. And I looked at him and said, no, you don't change the actors. This is the same actors you saw at the top of the show. He says, well, this is better. I like this better. So I'm already over him. I'm done. Intermission happens. My student comes down and I start, we start talking because we haven't seen each other in months and we just like to talk. And she was like, oh my God, I have great seats and this is beautiful and I'm having a great time. And oh, it reminds me so much memories and it's so good. It's so good. And he makes a beeline back to us and starts talking to my student in front of me. So who are you? Um, is your first time at the theater? She says, no, no, no. Um, well... I, I noticed you when you first came in. What do you think of the show? You know, and before she could even say she liked it, well, I don't think it's very good. I didn't like it at all. I had to leave. I couldn't stay in there another five minutes, blah, 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 blah. And finally, I had to say to him, excuse me, sir, this is a former student of mine. We haven't seen each other in months. I would like to have a conversation with my student during intermission, if you don't mind. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So he goes away again. And so we start having more conversation and then he comes right back and he goes right back to my student and he says, I just have to let you know that I noticed you when you first came in, you know, you were so exotic and you looked so excited to be at the theater. 
And of course, red flag is up on exotic. Talking to a, a Korean American student and you call her exotic. Hmm. And then he pulls out his phone. And then he shows us a picture of her that he took when she found her seat in the theater before the show began. He said, I just had to take this picture of you. You look so excited to be there. And, and, and we're just like, you know, gobsmacked about looking at this gall of this man showing us a picture that he took of a 20-something-year-old woman minding her own business. So he walks away again, and I see his wife. And then I call his wife over to me. I said, can you come over here for a second? I pulled her aside, and I said, um, I don't know what's going on right now, but your husband just showed us a picture of my student that he took without her permission at the start of the show. And I need you to go to him and have him delete that picture. She was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that he did this. Da, 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 da. And so she goes over to him and whether they stayed or they didn't stay, I do not know. You know, apparently his wife stayed because his wife enjoyed the show. So when all this happened and, you know, goes back into, um, you know, after intermission, I pull the house manager aside and I say, um, I just had this weird experience with this white guy, you know, just in my space talking about the show that he didn't like and then taking a picture of a student of mine and calling her exotic. And this uh, house manager who's black says, oh, yes, he's here all the time. Yes, we have to endure him. Yes, blah, blah, blah. He comes out and he talks about, you know, his art, blah, blah, blah. And I say, oh, really? Do you have? And he says, yes. You know, I'm like, do you? So you know who he is? Yes, I have his card. Would you like it? I would love it. So I took his card. And then I relayed this information to my superior, um, my, you know, my uh, superior about the situation. I put it in the notes. And he was like, I can't believe this happened to you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He related up the chain of command to have finally got to the managing director of Center Theater Group, who wrote me a letter and said, I need to know what you know about this person. I said, well, I have his information. Would you like it? He said, yes. And so I gave him the information. I relayed the entire story that I'm relaying to you right now. And uh, they said they were going to take care of it. I don't know the result of it because we went on, you know, uh, quarantine and the theaters are shut down. What was interesting about this piece is that, yes, I've had incidences as an actor. I have incidences about people writing me letters and notes and stuff, you know, um, seeing a show and saying, well, I have no right to do that. I have no right to be a part of that. You know, this I shouldn't be in a Shakespeare show because, you know, there were no blacks on the stage in Shakespeare. And I shouldn't be playing Hotspur because, you know, you know, blacks don't have the intelligence for that. I've gotten a note like that. I bring this one up because this is the first time I got to witness microaggression in an audience space. And in this space of 
Center Theater Group, where they have a huge subscription, uh, a huge subscription base. This is what you can expect if you are not a if you are if you're not a white person walking into this space. You can expect interrogation. You can expect, you know, a belittling of your understanding of what you're seeing, mansplaining, you know, being shout out, being, you know, subjected to that aggression to where you don't want to go back to this space because this space is not a welcoming space for you. It was really telling and it's really part of the conversation that's happening in the American theater right now. Not only is it about don't just pull us up and pull our shows out in February, but do some work, get your audiences right, get your staff right to deal with audiences that make a space unsafe for people of color. I was lucky that I had been here long enough that I was able to go through the channels and get to the right people to deal with the situation. I wonder about the people who are just starting out, the people that don't have the clout or the power or the ability to navigate that I do. So that's my story for today. All right, Eric, take it away. Well, gosh, that person sounds charming, doesn't he? Um, not Bernard, the, the unfortunate person he had to deal with. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I listened to that and I wrote down a couple of words that kind of occurred to me. And at first, the first word was just annoying. And then the second word was stalker. Um, you know, and, and it seems like there's three things going on. There's one, someone who has absolutely no appreciation for a play that I wish I had seen. I wish I'd seen this production of Jitney on Broadway. I passed by the theater when it was playing and it wasn't the show I had tickets for that night, but I would have loved to have seen it. Um, two, uh, he wouldn't let him do his job. He kept, you know, clearly, uh, you know, Bernard was there to facilitate a con. Well, we knew, uh, he was there to facilitate a conversation, but he was clearly at study. He was watching something and taking notes. He worked at the theater um, and made it very clear, I am here to do a job. Uh, and I think anybody with an ounce of common sense or respect would have just let somebody alone and let them do their job. And then the third piece was this photograph that was taken of his young student without her permission uh, in a way that was just creepy, creepy, creepy. So again, are any of these micro aggressions. I mean, I think the first one probably qualifies as a microaggression. You're allowed to have a different opinion about a play. And, and Bernard even says so. Um, I tend to, the story I make up is that this person probably didn't have the cultural competence required to really understand what he was watching and therefore didn't appreciate what was being displayed in front of him. But, you know, not everyone likes every play and that's fine. You're allowed to say I, I, it was, it was awful. And I left, I've heard people say that about a lot of things and sometimes I've agreed with them. That's fine. Um, the two pieces that were just, you know, again, uh, unforgivable, were not allowing someone who's there to do their work to do their work. Because again, you exist to entertain me because I didn't like the play. So I'm going to force you to be my entertainment, even though you clearly have another job to do and I'm getting in your way. Um, <laughs> and then the other piece is that that piece about the photograph, again, people taking 
you know, an image of what I imagine to be a lovely young girl and do what with it exactly? Ew. You know, <laughs> that was just incredibly disturbing. And, and neither one of those would I refer to as necessarily a microaggression. That was just, um, you know, uh, clearly creepy and at, at one level abusive behavior. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I I think you've covered all the bases. This was quite a story. Um, a lot of bad behavior. A lot of bad behavior. Yeah. Okay. And our final piece is our martini. Um, I'm not sure if I should prepare anyone for this, but this story is multi-layered. And uh, yeah, let's just give it a world here. Hi, my name is James A. Pierce the Third. And I want to share a bit of my story of my time at Anastasia on Broadway. During my two years in the company, I dealt with quite a few microaggressions, harassment, intimidation, and discrimination. I was the only black man in the show throughout the, the full run. And at the time that I was going through what I was going through there, I thought that I was going to receive guidance and help. And I found out later after the show was closed that these people were doing things purposely to intimidate me or try to aggravate me to try to get a reaction. Um, the incident I'm going to talk about specifically um, in this podcast is about uh, a person who was a leader. He was a dance captain. His name was he was a dance captain of the show and he is someone who does hold a position of power and uh, works closely with casting directors and choreographers and directors and has say when it comes to hiring. So at times people will give him the benefit of the doubt, not just because he's white, but because he has hiring power. And I want to talk about what he did in November of 2018. I noticed that there was a drawing of a penis ejaculating over my name in the dressing room. Now in the dressing room, we had this chalkboard and everyone in the cast, when the, show, when the show first opened, we all signed it, our signatures. And there were a couple of new guys in the show at this time, the show had been running for a little over a year and a half at the time. And someone mentioned the word dick. And so I looked up and I saw it and I had already been in contact with Equity about some wardrobe issues and some aggression that was being directed towards me from the, the, the stage manager as well as the company manager. And um, so I looked, I looked at it and I saw it and I quietly took note of it and took a picture of it and sent it to the union and demanded that it be taken down and it be addressed. Now, at that time, I knew it had to be one of two people, either the dance captain or another person, because these two people 
would draw penises on these notepads that we have for props for a scene in the show. And I had a, I had a gut feeling that it was the dance captain. I just, there was something in my gut that, that told me that it was him. Um, so I reported it. My agent even reported it to the company manager. And she told me they had a long discussion about it on the phone. And that was about a month after I reported it. Now, when I reported it to the union, they agreed that it was disgusting. They would have, they would, have, they would address it. They would have it taken down, but they, it, you know, told me to lay low and just go under the radar, like trying to draw any attention to myself, and which is what I did. But the problems kept going on. So on top of this picture being up there, there was a there was a wardrobe issue, and I was having issues where my clothes were not being set properly, or I was missing things or um, clothing will be dirty or wrinkled. And I had to constantly report it and nothing was being done about it. It was getting worse. I had wet clothing and all this, this, and that, during this whole time, there is this, this, this penis drawing, this, this drawing of a penis ejaculating over my name in the dressing room. And it's still up there. So, as time goes on, it's still there. Things don't get better. The, the, the stage manager, she's being very aggressive to me backstage. Um, I mentioned some of that in the article that came out last year about my issues in the show. Um, I'm emailing and calling Actors Equity on a regular basis, like almost every day, trying to get this thing taken down, trying to have these issues handled, trying to file a report against the stage manager because she's, she's being abusive and um, putting her hands on me. She was, um, she tried to uh, accuse me of, of um, not being sick. I caught out sick for one day and was trying to get me written up and the company manager tried to um, they, 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 they tried to intimidate me um, in emails. I, I called out sick for one day in December. And so it was, it was getting really nasty. And then, I, and then on top of that, they were spreading rumors about me within the cast members. One of the cast members took me aside outside of, outside of the show and mentioned to me that what was being said about me and um, just wanted to know how I was doing because they know me and they know that I'm not this person that someone these people are were saying that I was or they were making up these stories about me. Um, and and then I also found out from another person in another show in January of the following year, 2019, that things are being spread around the community about me from some of these same people. So. Shortly after January, we get in, we get our notice that we're going to close and that picture is still up there. I'm aggravated about it because nothing was done. And, I, and, I, and I've been asking them something about it over and over again. So the day before we close, the day before the show closes, I emailed Equity one more time. 
And I said to them, I was like, I am disgusted and disappointed in you. We've talked about this multiple times. The show is closing tomorrow and this picture is still up here. It's been up here for I don't know how long, but I've mentioned this to you since November. And you've done nothing about it. The company has done nothing about it. And it's still up here. Right after I sent that email, this guy, Dustin Layton, the dance captain, he took a picture of it, posted it on Instagram and tagged me in it. So for and that was after the matinee. So I had two shows left where I quietly just I did my shows. I was fuming. But if you know, when you're the only black person in the in a space of white folks, you can't show your ass. Because they already we already the rules are already different for us. So I'm fuming. And and I and I decide, you know what? I'm I'm going to go public with this. So I went on my social media and made some statements and um, on my on my story. And I get a text from him a few days later, saying that I'm throwing him under the bus, and that his boyfriend saw some comments on Reddit saying that he was a racist. And I and I called him. And I said to him, look, this is what I saw and I don't like it. And it makes me feel like I'm not a part of this cast and it's hurtful. And he goes, well, you know, I'm sorry. I, I am the one who did it. We were drunk. And, and he goes, and there were, there were more penises up there, but I just forgot to erase yours. And I was like, first of all, you were drunk. And then he said it was a joke. And you saying it was a joke. I wasn't even, I wasn't there for the joke. Number one. Number two, you were drunk. And then let's just, let's just say it was me. If I, if I had done something like that, I would have been written up and fired immediately. So he brushed it off as saying it was a drunken joke and that, it, and that, it, you know, he forgot it was up there. But you, ta- you took a picture of that the day before the show closed and tagged me in it. So how are you telling me you forgot that it was up there and you never came to me and addressed it with me at all? So what I, what I found out from him was that the, that picture was up there longer than I had even known. It had been up there for at least, at least a year prior to when I, well, I had seen it. What happened afterwards you know, I went public with my story. I, I shared some things. I shared the pictures online. And he again reached out to me and said, I thought we talked about this. I apologize. And I was like, first of all, it's not about you. And it's, big, it's bigger than you. And also, if you're going to apologize, how about you own up to what you did? Because I'm being, I'm being dragged on the internet. People are saying things about me in the, in the industry and saying negative things about me in the industry um, for, calling, for calling you out. So I ended up having to, well, I, this article came out until I shared my story. People turned their backs on me. People stopped speaking to me. Uh, you know, people, I got I stopped getting called in because, you know, he worked, you know, he, he's, he's a dance captain. So he works with these, these casting directors and these choreographers and whatnot. And so people will believe white folks over black folks. 
You could do everything by the book, which is what I did. I did everything by the book, do everything right, and they'll still. So um, I'm going to end it there. Again, my name is James A. Pierce III. And that was just a piece, a very small piece of my story of what I went through at Anastasia on Broadway from 2017 through 2019. And the, the aftermath of that from the past year has been very eye-opening and um, not easy. So thank you for listening. And if you want to see more about that story, it's um, on Onstage blog. And um, you can just Google search that and it'll, it'll, be, it'll show up. This, uh, I, I feel very comfortable saying nothing about this story says microaggression to me. Oh. This is blatant workplace bullying, and it's an incredibly toxic work environment that James needed to suffer through. And I think that a lot of times, um, you know, folks believe that in certain creative environments where people are a little bit free, a little bit easy. Again, we talked about this before, you know, people are touching you. Um, oftentimes there are love scenes that take place on stage. There are behaviors that don't take place at your normal average workspace. And yet backstage at a theater is a workplace. And the same rules apply that should apply to any workplace. I would say even more so because part of being a, a performer, you're asking folks to oftentimes be very emotionally vulnerable and actually extra layers of safety are required. To, to, for people to do that kind of work. But in any workspace, you want people to feel like they belong, you want them to feel like they're included, and you want them to feel like they're safe from this level of abuse. I mean, that was a terrible story. And I don't mean that James is a ter terrible storyteller. I mean, that's just a terrible experience mm -hmm. for anyone to have to endure. It was On so many levels. Yeah, it saddens me that he sought help from the union and things weren't done right away or or the company manager. I mean, it's just it was just one of those bad, bad, bad work experiences. So yeah. um, I even thought of doing a whole it's interesting that you use the word bullying because I wanted to do a whole episode with him called bullying on Broadway. But um, the other parties involved whom he, he named um, and at the time of our chat right now, I'm not sure if I will bleep those names out. So listeners, if it is bleeped and it's because it was advised that I do so. And if it isn't, well, then it's not. Um, yeah, I just don't know that other parties would come on and, you know, have this discussion. And I'm not a mediator. And it sounds like it's something that James is pursuing and he's not going to let go of, as he shouldn't, you know. Yeah, the show has closed and this other fella gets to move on and have more of these jobs. And and again, I'm, I'm reminded of power dynamic, right? One of the things that we know about people in power is that one of the side effects of power, and by the way, I, I, I want to be really clear, power is not a net negative. You know, without power means that you have the ability to motivate people to get things done. And you can do that in, a, in an inspiring, empowering way, or you can do it in a punitive kind of command and control way. But if people didn't exercise their power in this world, nothing would get done. And, you know, in the world of, let's just use the theater as an example, you know, the director has the power to tell people where to stand and where to go because otherwise things would not happen, right? <laughs> and that's just, you know, and so you can use that power for good or for evil, right? 
But power, one of the things about it is that it tends to result, and it's a pretty psychologically predictable behavior, what we call uninhibited social behavior. Now, the kinds of juvenile drawings that James was describing over his name, you know, that takes uninhibited to kind of another degree. Uninhibited social behavior can actually be a positive in certain instances. It means that you might take risks. It means that you might come up with some wild and woolly ideas that, uh, you know, that your creative juices really get flowing and you have the ability to let those spring forward. Or it can be the kind of toxic behaviors that we're looking at here. Um, I think that it's interesting, though, that that's a, a, it is something that happens when you have a lot of power. If this dance captain weren't in a position of power over James, never would have done that. It would not have happened. And, okay. and the fact that this person believed that a simple apology uh, was enough with absolutely, and to make amends, all we're talking about is erase the drawing. Yeah. Get rid of it. You know it's hurtful. But yeah. to simply say, oh, I'm sorry, it didn't mean anything. And oh, by the way, I was drunk. You oh, know. and by the way, I send it via Instagram and tag you in it. So that yeah. is intent versus impact. Now, this is yeah. an intention right there. Yeah. This person intended to be harmful. Yes, yes. And then, but to your face, I'm going to simply say, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, and I was drunk. And, you know, a lot of times alcohol actually reveals more than it creates. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, I... I Listen, I don't know, we, we haven't heard the other side of this particular story, but I tell you, I, I hear James's story and it, it hurts to listen to. And if it hurts just to listen to it, one can only imagine what it was like to have to show up to work every day. Yeah. Eight shows a week and Amazing. work alongside people who it doesn't sound like James had a whole lot of allies either. You know, we, we had a, a couple of stories that we listened to where the, the power of allyship really showed up. Uh, and it sounds like he had a lot of people who were saying all the right things. We'll take care of it. You know, just focus on your work. This will be handled and you don't have to do a thing. And if that had been followed through, this would have been a much more positive story because you know, there are jerks out there. Look, there are jerks everywhere. Uh, but the people who are responsible for managing that really need to step up mm -hmm. because no one in any kind of work environment should have to dread going to work and, and facing the kinds of behavior that James endured for months. Wow. Yes, I know. It's it's something. So the rest of the story remains to be told. I will follow up and certainly keep you posted about it. Um, I'd love to hear, yeah. Yeah, as we wrap this up, um, dear Eric, I have to uh, mention that you are a whole human and that you have other interests outside of what you do, diversity, inclusion, and uh, being this microaggression expert of sorts and a member of the LGBTQIA uh, community. But you also have an interesting podcast. Let's talk about that super briefly in case we want our list, my listeners to go check you out because what you're doing sounds like a lot of fun. I would love to. Yeah, we have a little show. Uh, my friends, Allie and Matt and I, uh, about, uh, my gosh, we have about 28 shows a year. So we kind of put our stuff out in these little mini seasons. And what we do is we go back in time, 10 years, 25 years, 50 or 75 years, and talk about a slate of movies that came out during that year. So right now we're recording episodes all about 1970. Uh, and some of the films on the docket are Patton, uh, The Boys in the Band, which is one of the first ensemble mainstream films ever made about the LGBT community. Uh, the Great White Hope, uh, starring James Earl Jones in his, one of his first film roles. Um, uh, as a, as, yeah, a takeoff on the, the boxer Jack Johnson. Um, 
Uh, let me see. Love Story, which I expect will be completely sappy and, you know, infuriating in lots of ways. Uh, MASH, the original MASH before it was a television show. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of going back and saying, basically, how do these hold up? Watching them 50 years later, A, what are we learning about 1970? But what is it still telling us about today? Did, did something about this just strike a universal chord about the human experience that still speaks to us? Or is it just best left in the past. And we encounter both kinds. Uh, and, and we try to have a, we, we try to have a good time. I imagine. Uh, yeah. What's the name of the podcast and where can we find it? So we, we call it the Rewind Project. Uh, and you can find it pretty much anywhere you look for podcasts, but you could always start at our website, which is rewindpod.com. And we there are links the link there. in the show notes. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you so I'll much. The links in the show notes. Yes, thank you. Uh, special thanks to Susan Dalian, Antonio, Tekenia, Rachel, Isabel, who is my cousin, by the way, Charmaine, Sean, uh, Bernard Addison, and James Pierce the third. Uh, Eric, I thank you so very much. Do you guys have a signature uh, sign off in your, on your show? The uh, rewind? Uh, yeah, we always end with the, the simple phrase, be kind, rewind. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Cause that is how we're going to say goodbye to my listeners today. Listeners, be kind and rewind. Yay. Bye. Bye. 